Now, I'm not sure about you. I love to swim. I love to swim in the ocean. But I, I can't imagine few things more fearful than what Jonah is describing here. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. Jonah chapter 2. Thanksgiving approaches us, and so I wanted to orient our hearts to Thanksgiving again, even as we have been in a... We concluded a series on prayer, and we discussed Thanksgiving then. I remember a time in my life I was particularly thankful for something, many times, but one time in particular. I used to spend, my brother and I used to spend extended periods of time at my grandparents' house in West Virginia, Mimi and Papaw. And one of the things that we used to do in the summers was we would go to one of the many rivers in West Virginia, that's where they lived, and we would go floating down the river. And I know maybe some of you have done this at a local place or elsewhere in your life, and you get a tube, and you, you, know, you pack lunch, and you, you get on the tube, and you just float, and you go down the river, and you see the scenery, and you take it in, and it's a, it's a sweet time. Well, we used, to, we used to float the river with one of our cousins, and he was the kind of man that I think he could take just a bottle of water in, in the forest and live there for the rest of his life. I mean, he was, he was a mountain man, you know? And, um, and so we got out and we got started and, um, and he said, by the way, if you see a muskie, leave it alone. Now, how many of you know what a muskie is? Okay. In the South, we have a similar fish. We call them gar, right? Basically, think of a freshwater barracuda, right? They're ugly. They got big old teeth and you don't want to fight with them. Now, obviously, the particular danger if you're floating the river is not that they're going to attack you like a shark, it's that they're going to puncture your tube, and you've got a problem. So we're floating, this is midday, we've been floating for hours, and we're chilling, talking, having a great time, and, and I look down, I'm on my belly, and I look down, and there's a muskie swimming under me, maybe 10 feet below the tube, just going along. And I'm very thankful that it stayed where it was. And we didn't have any further problems. It swam off, and it probably didn't even notice me, but I noticed it on top of the water. Perhaps you've been at a time in your life where it really feels like you're under the water. And there's threats, there's dangers down there. It's difficult down there. And in fact, the deeper you get, the scarier it becomes. The waters become more turbulent. The pressure on your soul becomes more painful. 
and you'd like to be on top of the water, looking down. It seems like it'd be a lot easier to be thankful if you were not in the water. Well, this morning we study the prayer of a well-known Old Testament figure, Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2. Now, this is a much richer book than I'm afraid at times we simplify it to, namely in our Sunday school classes and the stories that we think of. And maybe we, we think of Jonah as one of the first people we should learn about in the Bible. Um, you, you should know when you read Jonah in this book, don't emulate Jonah. Jonah's angry most of the time. He's, he's, he's pitying himself most of the time. And we'll notice that at the end, and, and the, the way the book is laid out is, is really beautiful in its structure, and I want to point out that structure to you at the end because there's actually something very specific I want to show you that the book does, and one primary, uh, cont- one primary um, orientation to our thanksgiving. There is a primary theme in the book that's to motivate the content of our thanksgiving, but we're in Jonah chapter 2, and, and you know the story. Um, again, we'll summarize later. I'm going to point out to you, they're going to show the whole structure of the book so that you see something. But, but you know what happens. Chapter 1, the word of the Lord goes to Jonah. The word of the Lord arrives uh, to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh and call out against that great city. It's a great city in its uh, military conquest. It's a great city in its size. It's a great city in its people. They're an incredibly intimidating, dangerous people. They're a conquering people. They're a wealthy people. Um, You've probably heard the fact that it would have taken Jonah several days to to travel the length of the city and declare God's message, just based on the historical information that we have. We have met Jonah in a historic, you meet Jonah in a historical book. He delivers the word to Rehoboam II, 2 Kings chapter 14. And so we see him elsewhere in the scriptures. Um, this book is probably, probably written in the late 700s, and, and we see that for one, based on what we know of Rehoboam II's reign, and, and actually, secondly, there's a pretty significant famine that takes place surrounding Nineveh in the late 700s, and so there is historical evidence that the people of Nineveh would have been Uh, fearful or at least beginning to experience that famine. So they would have been ripe for turning to the Lord, that maybe God was already beginning to use this historical circumstance to to soften or threaten the people of Nineveh. But you know what Jonah does. He goes the opposite direction. He runs from the Lord. And why does he do this? He could be fearful. Now, he probably is fearful. Again, the Ninevites were horrible people. The worst, they were barbaric. Um, they, would, they would flay their enemies and put their bodies on the wall so that as people were entering, they would be intimidated. And they would do other things with the skins after they'd flayed them. They were brutal people. That's just one example of their brutality. I'm trying to be tactful because I know we still have children in the room. They were truly a horrible people. But it's actually, if you read the book, fear is not Jonah's primary motivation for not wanting to deliver the message. Ultimately, Jonah just hates these people. And he thinks they're not worthy of God's compassion. 
And by human standards, maybe you can think of some people that you felt that way about, even maybe now. But that's what Jonah's feeling, so he, he runs with the message of the Lord to the wrong place. And you know what God does to get his attention. He sends a fish. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Sometimes we like to get really, you know, what's the fish and who's the fish? Is it, did God create a fish or is it a miraculous fish or is it just a really big fish? That doesn't matter as much as the point that it's a fish. Now, you can probably understand that there's a great deal of conjecture around the book of Jonah. Is this metaphorical? I tend to think that this truly happened. This is a miraculous event and that God in his sovereignty appointed some animal by his sovereign hand to swallow Jonah. He elsewhere uses animals or nature in the book when he, by his sovereignty, brings up a plant, and then he uses a worm to destroy the plant. So we know that God uses nature in this book multiple times to establish his sovereignty. All of that to set up where Jonah is now. Jonah's not on top of the water looking down, thankful that there's no danger. He's remembering back the danger in the water. And we find ourselves in Jonah's prayer. There's going to be another prayer later, and it's going to be significant to remember, but this is the first of Jonah's prayers. This is the good of the prayers. The one later is not so good. He's deep in trouble, fearing for his life. And if you'll read with me the text now, Jonah chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and he heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All of your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again to your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, when I was fainting away. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you What I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Will you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for a passage that we may be familiar with, and I pray this morning that familiarity would not breed disinterest, but that you would use this text to cause us to be eternally grateful, constantly grateful, affectionately grateful for your compassion, that you have pitied us, and that our hope for life and death is forever secure. This morning, I pray that you would encourage people in the depths of the waters with your compassion. You would save those in the depths of sin by your compassion, and you would cause your people to be constantly thankful 
ever grateful, living out both with our lips and our lives our thankfulness for your compassion. And I pray these things because of Christ. Amen. If you'll note with me verses 1 through 6, first of all, the distress in the deep, the distress in the deep. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And now we note Jonah's prayer. Now, there's obviously lots of ideas about this text. Um, One of the questions is, is this exactly what Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish, and he remembers it and he writes it later, or is this his meditation about his time in the fish uh, later when he's writing the book? Um, You understand that pen and paper would have been hard to come by in the belly of a fish. So I tend to think that he's looking back on the time in the belly of the fish, and he's meditating, and this is a Essentially, a thanksgiving psalm, almost like a, a psalm of po- a, a biblical poetry, Old Testament poetry, like a psalm that he writes recounting his time in the, the belly of the fish. There's ancient documentation that has a text very similar to this in one of the, in one of the older ancient Psalters, uh, Hebrew Psalters. So it's likely that this text made its way into Hebrew poetry. It's also possible that when he writes this, he's imitating some of that psalm terminology, Hebrew poetry terminology in the text. We, of course, see one very, one very uh, clear allusion to psalm literature in chapter 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so I tend to think he's meditating on his time in the belly of the fish, and he's writing about it here. And it's clear that's what he's doing. He's writing about this event. And if you just walk through the details of the text, out of the belly of Sheol, so out of the belly, he's describing his time in a belly, and he's equating it with the realm of the dead, Sheol. And so he, he, he parallels these two ideas. He combines this idea, like the belly of the fish, he equates with death. And you heard my voice, you cast me into the deep. Into the deep what? The heart of the seas. And the flood of what? Water surrounded me, and your waves and billows passed over me. So he's describing his time cast into the water. Now Jonah acknowledges in in verse 3 that God cast him into the water, pointing out to us the idea that Jonah understands this idea of loving discipline. Jonah says, you have cast me into the water. Now why is it significant that he would say that? Because if you go back to chapter 1, verse 15, it's the sailors who cast him into the water. Look at verse 15. So they, that's pagan sailors on the boat that he's sharing on his way to Tarshish, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. But, but Jonah attributes this casting into the water to God. This is God's attempt to bring him back to where he should be. This is the loving discipline of the Lord. This is the loving, chastising, drawing of the Lord. You cast me into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me with all your waves, and billows passed over me. Brothers, sisters, loved ones, there's a time, there are times in our life when the natural consequences of our sin are means for God's loving discipline. Good choices carry good consequences. Choices of lacking trust and lacking faith. 
Choices of pride, refusals to submit ourselves to God's will, carry only danger in their consequences, only detriment. And of course, there are times when God extends mercy and He withholds that consequence. But Jonah attributes the sovereign discipline of the Lord being cast into the sea. And if there's even further question about the sovereign discipline of the Lord, that question is pretty much answered in God appointing an animal, some sort of fish, or perhaps He created a fish for this exact circumstance, to pursue Jonah, literally, and swallow him. Again, my view on the passage, I believe it's literal, a literal miracle, not some poetic metaphor. Now, I'm not sure about you. I love to swim. I love to swim in the ocean. But I, I can't imagine few things more fearful than what Jonah is describing here. I love to swim in the ocean in the daytime. When I can see below me and around me, and the sun is making everything pretty, we used to vacation in the Panama City, Destin, Florida area, and I'm not sure you've been there. If it's not red tide there, the water is beautiful, crystal clear green. You go snorkeling there, you can, you know, the, 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 fish, are, the fish aren't bothered by you. If you're swimming through their school, they're just going to go right around you, and they're just going to do their thing, and it's amazing. It's beautiful, but that's, that's a good thing. This is terrible. It's dark. It's storming. Maybe, maybe, okay, maybe you haven't seen this. This is what comes to my mind, the visual that comes to my mind. Uh, maybe you've seen it with your kids, your grandkids. You know that scene in Finding Nemo when, when the fish see the whale, the blue whale that's about to swallow them, a really far way away, and it's just this little speck, and then the blue whale turns, and you get the idea, this thing's massive. Can you imagine Jonah sinking in the sea, and this fish comes after him. This, okay, we tell the story like it's a Sunday school story, and we forget all the scary details. Whoa, to use a Pastor Fisherism, right? The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds, the weeds of what? The weeds of the ocean were wrapped about my head as the roots of the mountains. So he's, he's giving us the idea that he's gone so deep that he's touching mountains in the water. He's going to the, deeps, the depths of the mountains in the water. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Now it's like prison terminology, closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. And now he's drowning, verse 7, when my life was fainting away, he's dying. I remember the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So he notes the discipline of the Lord and he notes the primary distress of this experience in the deep is the concept of death. He's dying, verse 5, the waters closed over me to take my life. He's drowning. Something tells me, no matter how long, if it's years after this event that Jonah writes this, he remembers it pretty vividly. 
that there's some actual trauma involved here that he's describing. But what's he note about the salvation of the Lord? You brought up my life from the pit. He's going to orient, he's going to direct all of this meditation into one primary concept in verses 8 and 9. So the distress of this deep, the discipline of the Lord cast into the waters, pursued by the, the natural means that God provides this, anim, this, this animal, this great fish. And then he's seeing, he's, he's seeing life around him, knowing that he's dying, experiencing the final moments of his life. But he's delivered in verses 7 through 9. And he orients this deliverance to a primary concept. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Note with me in verses 7 through 9, deliverance from the deep, deliverance from the deep. Now, before we move on into the extent of this point, I just want to apply this circumstantially. Some of you may be entering the deepest waters of your life. Some of you may feel emotional drowning, spiritual drowning. We're about to enter the holidays, and the holidays are really hard for some of you. You're about to go into the first year having lost a loved one, the first holidays having lost a loved one. Or if it's not the first, it's you're 10, 15, 20 years into losing a loved one and you look back and there's still grief, there's sadness, the holidays haven't been the same. You're afraid the kids aren't going to come around or if they do, things are going to be difficult. This can be a difficult time. Some of you have been given really difficult physical news, physical diagnosis. There's difficulty, deep waters. Do you trust that the Lord will raise you up from the deep? What's going to be your hope? What alone will be your raft, your hope of safety, so that even in those waters you can get through confidently with hope and with peace and with security. It is these next concepts that we are about to describe. Whatever the depth, whatever the difficult waters in your life that we face, that you face, where you are right now or what is to come, how can you face them? You can face them with the reality that God delivers and what does that deliverance look like? Look with me in verses 8 and 9. So verse 7 is Jonah's way of saying, you heard me. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. You heard me. You acknowledged me. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And so you note with me in verses eight, verse 8, the idea of covenant compassion. Covenant compassion. Those who pay regard to vain idols Lose the joy of what? For steadfast love. 
They lose the security of what? Steadfast love. Now, just a reminder how the Old Testament works. You understand that in Israel, God laid a covenant with them. We've talked about this even, we talked about it in Daniel, and I know you know the words. So, the covenant is established in Exodus 19. It's stated in the terms of the law in the following chapters, and it's re- the law is re-given in Deuteronomy. Um, I've set my love upon you, but you must obey my law. And what is the founding law of all these laws? You will love God. This is the founding law of all the laws. And so what's the farthest you can get away from the founding law? You will not have other gods before me. And so it's this concept that Jonah is tapping into. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the steadfast love of God, the covenant love of God the ongoing, continual, merciful love of God. How can we be certain that we will not know the joy, security, and peace of a right relationship with God? Love something else. And there's there's an aspect of volition or choice and consequence here. You and I should not be surprised when we are not experiencing the joy of God's love if our affection has been set elsewhere, even on good things. Jesus Himself says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to put me above all. And that includes father and mother and children. And when he says you have to despise them in relation to me, he's not saying hate them. He means you have to think little of them in relation to me. I, Jesus is saying, am the most important thing in your life if you're going to follow me. Everything else hinges on that. And so we should not be shocked when we don't know his love because our love is elsewhere. So in this text, Jonah notes the most fundamental sort of operating system of the Old Testament. Obey God and know His steadfast covenant love. Which leads him into verse 9. I with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will Pay now. These are these are uh, offerings, Old Testament ceremonial payments and offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. But he says, "I will with voice, I will offer up thanksgiving to you on the basis of what the covenant and compassion in verse eight. You and I, to summarize verses eight and nine very simply, should be very thankful that God loves us, and we should talk about that." with our lives, and with our lips. When was the last time, (coughs) excuse me, you expressed to God or anyone else, you know, I just really can't believe that God loves me, that God has shown compassion upon me. He has looked upon my estate. And being who I am and being who He is, He has, in His perfect person, 
chosen to set his affection upon me, and because of who he is, it will not change in the basis of my performance. And so rather than living life as a believer out of fear, you live it out of grace or out of guilt. You live it out of grace or out of pride, attempting to seek good things for yourself or good favor for yourself, either from God or for others. You're doing everything you can because God loves you and you desire with the life of thanksgiving to sacrifice for Him. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 3, Psalm 18, Psalm 37. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Revelation 7. We will say together, salvation belongs to the Lord our God and the Lamb who sits on the throne. And for this, we should offer up continual thanksgiving to the Father to the Son, and to the Spirit. That line of the song that we sang together, for God Himself has made a way. So this covenant compassion results in great gratitude that in the depths of the waters, on top of them, where it looks like you're safe as long as the danger stays down there, or whether you are overwhelmed by them and you're walking through them or you're swimming in them, God will raise us up and He has eternally in Christ. So take courage in His power to save. If He can raise you from the mire of sin, the drowning debt, of the curse of the fall. He can raise you from the depth and turbulent waters of difficult circumstances, physical trial, and even and namely the consequences of our sin. For He is a God of great compassion. He has looked upon us with chapter 4, verse 11, Pity. Now, this idea of pity maintains the idea of condescension. When I look at my child in a painful circumstance, or maybe they're doing something that they can't do, it's beyond them, it's too advanced for them, and they need my help, there's an aspect of pity. I need to condescend to them. I need to be what they need because they're at a level that I am not. And I can do things for them that they can't. And I can accomplish things that they can't. And I can understand things that they don't. And so we pity them. We were on vacation. We were talking about this in Sunday school. We were on vacation last week. You, you know this. It's good to be back. Thank you for those who just reached out and said they loved us and were praying for us. And we always miss being here, but many of you said, because you know the tendencies of my family, um, we're praying you stay healthy on vacation. Many of you said that, and I'm thankful for that. 
And I got to say to you, um, the Lord heard your prayer, except for one day. <laughs> um, Lily, Lily got a, Lily spiked a fever inexplicably, and so um, <clears throat> she was acting weird. We took her to urgent care. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, you know that feeling when your child is sick. It was weird. It was just like a one-day kind of weird thing, and she felt okay. She was able to enjoy vacation. We had a great time, but you know that child when you're, or the feeling when your child is sick, especially when they have a fever. You know when a kid has a, a young kid has a high fever, they're just, I mean, it's pitiful. They just sit there, and they look sad, and sometimes they cry without making any sound. You know, they just feel so bad, and, and you just want to, you just want to take it. You just want to help them, and you know that feeling that your heart is just for them. You just love them. And God, in His compassion, looks upon His pitiful children, looks upon the pitiable state of sin, and sees us struggle. And his heart condescends. And he's for us. A heart that we are to have for others and a heart that Jonah does not have for the Ninevites. God's heart is for Nineveh. Even in this book. So yes, Israel, Old Testament, covenant, it's primarily made with Israel and they know the blessings of the covenant. But we see throughout the Old Testament God showing compassion on Gentiles. And it resounds clearly in this book. And in order to see that, I want to show you something that may seem complex at first, but I really need you to follow me. Okay, I really need you to follow me. Because I'm going to teach you now, I'm going to show you the whole structure of the book of Jonah and how it's intended to give us one main point right at the very end. Okay? So you get your thinking caps on. All right, I want you to see something with me. This book is divided almost exactly, or not verse-wise, but in its content into seven episodes. Seven episodes. And there's parallelism to point out each one of these episodes. Okay? So if we note the first episode... It's this idea of Jonah's commission. So we've got, a little, we've got a little chart to help you for you visual learners, all right? So if you note this first episode in Jonah chapter 1 and in Jonah chapter 3, he's commissioned. And you see these episodes parallel together. Uh, that's very important that you see these episodes having a parallel. There's two. Chapter 1, verse 3, arise and go. To Nineveh. Chapter 3, verse 2, arise and go to Nineveh. So the first episode that you're supposed to understand in parallel is Jonah's commission. And the second parallel episodes that you're supposed to see are the, is the idea of Jonah and his interaction with the pagans. In chapter 1, verses 4 through 16, it's the pagan sailors. In chapter 3, it's Jonah with the Ninevites. So again, there's this idea of repeated parallel. One and three, or chapter 1, chapter 3, it's the commissioning. 
Chapter 1 and chapter 3, it's his relationship with the pagans. Now, chapter 2, beginning in chapter 1, verse 17, and down through chapter 2, it's his first prayer. So Jonah prays. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, taking us to the end of the book, we're almost done with the book, Jonah prays. Do you see this? These episodes maintain a dual idea. The book is structured this way. Repeated episodes for parallel. In chapter chapter 2, it's a good prayer. In chapter 4, it's not so good. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That that is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better that I die than to live. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? What's he saying in chapter 4? It's very important that we understand this prayer because it sets up this last point that we're going to make. Jonah says, here's the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh. I knew you'd save them. And I don't think they should be saved. Isn't that, I mean, it's such a weird theological combination of things going on. On the one hand, Jonah's like, God, I know you and you're good. On the other hand, I don't want these people to know that. So he's a good prophet in that he knows God, but he's a bad prophet in that he doesn't want some people to know God. It's really ironic. Sad, but ironic. And basically, a lot of what happens in chapter 4 with Jonah is that he pouts. But there's one final episode. Listen, it's very important. There's one final episode. And it is not resolved. It doesn't have a parallel. It stands alone. And this episode is the expression of God's compassion on Nineveh. So you see this idea that these episodes are repeated throughout the book. But there's one concept, one unit that does not have a resolving parallel. Why? Because it is intended to stand alone for the point of emphasis. It's a beautifully written book. And what is this final unit? God teaches Jonah his compassion. Jonah went to the city and sat east of the city and made for himself a booth there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant, again, his sovereignty and creation. There's a, there's a great deal of God's sovereignty and creation in this book. Made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So God shows compassion to Jonah. Jonah's uncomfortable, so God gives him some comfort. But then he removes that comfort. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to live, than, better to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in the night. What's he say? You feel bad for the plant that died. You pity the plant, and you didn't make it. It's very important. Remember what he says next. And should I not pity Nineveh? Implication. Those that I did make. That I am responsible for. And loved one, God in His grace has shown His eternal pity upon us. What does the writer of this book that I believe to be Jonah, what does the writer of this book literally want you to walk away with? What's the last thing he wants you to know? You should be thankful for God's compassion. God has shown us pity. He's condescended to us. And how ultimately do we see this within the unfolding of God's eternity? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. And as God uses this fish to make Jonah temporarily thankful for his compassion and raises him from that fish that he may know his saving compassion, so God in his grace has sent his Son to us that he may dwell in the belly of the earth, the belly of Sheol, raise up His Son from that pit and make us thankful for His compassion. And so what does this entire book in its closing theme cause us to recognize as we head into this week God's great compassion towards us motivates our great gratitude towards Him. God's great compassion toward us motivates our gratitude towards Him. So this week, when you eat turkey, and you do whatever you do for a time of thanksgiving, and I truly hope that that there is a time, a moment, where you as a family get together and you, you talk about the grace of the Lord. That someone in your family, or you deep in your heart, or as you wake up to do your reflection on Thanksgiving, or the days before Thanksgiving, and every day after, until we are able to thank the Son with our own lips, May we say prayers to God of thanks for His compassion toward us.
that He has looked upon our estate, and He has sent our Son to become, sent His Son to become sin for us, that we may become the righteousness of God in Him. May His great compassion motivate our great gratitude. Would you pray with me?